Hi, everybody. Welcome to Emmaus Way on a beautiful Sunday night. We're going to start with a song by Julie Miller called I Call On You. Sorrow runs through me like blood I call on you When it's drowning my heart in a flood I call on you You are my drug, you're my wine You are my medicine too the remedy, you are the cure. I call on you. Knowing in trouble, I swallow my soul. I call on you. When I'm away late and losing my hope, I call on you. Got my hope by the throat. You break the spell in two. You put your love on me like a coat. I call on you. I call on. I call on you 
start of the game. Anyway, uh, we're going to start with our kids leading us in our Linton community prayer. So, Joel, do you care to lead us? Sure. Lent has arrived. It's time for reflecting the season of repentance. Lord, Lord have mercy. mercy. As we enter into this dim time, we pray, O oh God, help us to turn back, to let go, to move forward. To hold loosely, to take up, to speak out, each in its own time, each in its own place. Lord, have mercy. Help us to hear, help us to see, help us to know, each in its own time, each in its own place. Lord, have mercy. For 40 days and 40 nights, help us also to live into the promise of life. Thanks so much, kids. We'll see you in just a little bit. Welcome to Mayus Way. For those of you that are new, I'm Molly, one of the co-pastors here, along with Tim and Mark, Elizabeth, and Ben. Um, ben is out. He and Amanda are continuing to wait for baby Haas to arrive. Um, so he's on a bit of paternity leave. But if you are new to us and want to find out more about us, there's a green card on the front table that has information about us if you want to take that. And then we also have a yellow card that you can fill out with your name and email if you want us, if you want to find out more about us and get on some of our listservs. We also, I'm trying to think, announcements. Baby train, yes. So we're still waiting on baby Haas and we're still waiting on baby Clark Sutton. They're both due any day. But the busmen, so they are no longer a part of Emmaus Way, they will forever be a part of us. They had a baby boy on St. Patrick's Day. So I think it's Arthur Francis Busman. Um, so if you all are not on social media, on the Facebook, like Mark, you maybe didn't see it. Um, but yeah, so if you want to wish them congrats, I'm sure they would appreciate it. Other announcements? Reality wanted us to announce that they, their talent show this year is at the DPAC. Real fancy. Um, it's free, but you have to reserve tickets to go. It's on April 25th. 
They already, Julie wanted me to let you all know, they already have 1,900 tickets reserved. So if you're thinking you want to go, she strongly encourages you all to go ahead and reserve a ticket or you will be sitting in the nosebleeds, she said. Um, we're in the season of Lent, so we have different Lenten opportunities to connect with one another. Um, you can get a calendar, it's also on the website. But on Thursday at 7 o'clock, I believe, SK and J. Russ are going to have an evening of kind of art and creation. Um, so if you would like to go to that, talk to SK or J. Russ. And on Sunday at 10.30, it's kind of kids and families um, centered around anyone can come. Kids and families are encouraged to come also, and it's centered around prayer and art and kind of different ways to connect um, to Lent during this time. So that's at the Eford House. Talk to Elizabeth or Wendy Renz about that. Are there any other announcements? Yes. Well, I said if anyone wants a copy of the PowerPoint about the space. Oh, yeah. So for those of you that weren't at Ecclesia on March 5th, um, we have a pretty viable space option on the table where we may um, be moving. We're in kind of discernment about that. If you would like to see the great kind of PowerPoint slideshow about our process of how we've gotten to this point and what the new space looks like, email Laura Wooten, one of our lay leaders, and she will send that to you. Um, anyone on staff or the lay leaders, anybody on space team would also be happy to chat if you have questions about that. Any other thoughts? As always, Dave Thiessen seeing the treasurer. If you want to if you feel like Emmaus Way is a place um, that you would like to commit or contribute financially, um, we don't pass the plate, but we have a metallic bowl on our big table where everything else is. Feel free to put a donation in, or you can give online or mail a check to Dave. The address is on the website. You don't, like, mail it to Dave's house. You mail it to the church. Dave is just our treasurer. Um, okay, I think that was a lot of announcements. And Mark and Chessa come lead us in our songs of preparation. So if you guys haven't met Chessa, you should. She's wonderful. And it's wonderful to have her here with us again. Um, this is a song, um, I really like Peter Himmelman as a writer, which is why we do a lot of songs by him here. But this is actually, this might be my favorite one by him, actually. And we haven't done it in a long time, but I sort of thought about it in light of what the text is this week, <clears throat> which is the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. And so I thought of sort of the positionality that this woman at the well held uh, in Jewish and in Samaritan society. Um, we'll talk more about what that might be and I look forward to hearing you guys' thoughts on it too. Uh, but this song came to mind as I was thinking about what kind of positionality might someone have in society, especially um, a woman who is not in power, um, not empowered in any way. So this is Beneath the Damage in the Dust.
Her eyes are sweet and dark as coal. They've long since given up finding someone to trust. She has a silver plated soul. Beneath the damage and the dust. They say she's never known a single hour of stillness. And they say she's as dangerous as a child that can inspire lust. You know that some people's minds are so full of Never look beneath the damage and the dust. I want to lift her up. I got to pick her up. Walking downtown on a foggy summer evening, everybody watches with a blend of wonder and disgust. Well, I want so bad to stop. I want to raise her from beneath the damage and I want to lift her up. I want to pick her up. Crazy, 
this is flesh and blood I am every man's daughter Every man's daughter Look at all the blood we've spilled I can't deal with all this fundamental guilt Just like, just like I am hurting someone I am hurting someone Just like, just like you I am, I am, I am Every man's daughter give us sort of his thoughts on what repentance means for him, what words, what feelings and thoughts that conjures. I've known Tim since he came to Mace Wave, like, I don't know, how many years ago is that now? Seven. Seven years ago. Wow. Almost, yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Well, I've always, um, one of the things that I love about Tim, one, I love his irreverence. Like, I just, anybody that's irreverent, I'm drawn to immediately. So I love that about Tim. But I also love, um, Tim is someone, I can say this about Tim because he can't really say this stuff about himself. I, I, Tim is someone for me that, I feel like Tim has a certain tenacity to him of, like, getting after um, a real, like, experience, um, you know, Tim will, will tell you more probably about some of his, his own history, but I've always just been so um, touched by the ways that, Tim, that you really seek um, some kind of, like, deeper line to something uh, rather than just taking whatever's been given to you. So, Tim Wooten, everybody. I appreciate that, Mark. Um, yeah, I will give a, a little bit more of my history as I kind of reflect on uh, repentance, but I, I'll start with the fact that as a child, my first introductions to repentance were probably probably like many of you in the room, um, happening at a Baptist church, um, and repentance was something that was needed for a relationship with God. Um, having grown up in a moderate CBF Baptist church, we can talk more if, those, if that doesn't ring a bell for you, but uh, there probably wasn't as much talk of what we would call hellfire and damnation, uh, you know, as some of my friends that I know in the room uh, endured that, uh, that hell for more conservative backgrounds. Nonetheless, repentance was primarily concerned with the life that comes after this one, not so much what's happening now or what we're experiencing now. Um, repentance was something that was done. It was an action to acknowledge our shortcomings as Christians, and to some degree it was necessary to avoid going to hell. It sounds overly simple, but that's just kind of how I grew up. Um, 
And so when I was nearing the transition from high school to college, I I first encountered a very different version of repentance. Uh, At this stage in life, repentance was was still very much an action, but the amount of repentance, its requirements, and the occasions that called for repentance became much more numerous, black and white, and legalistic. At one point in my late teens, I even thought that I was called to be a pastor. Uh, and in mind, and in that, in my mind, it seemed like this was the end goal of repentance, to to ultimately show repentance uh, through this becoming a pastor was awesome and could lead to uh, serving God in that capacity. I was never really uncomfortable growing up uh, with the idea of repentance, at least not repentance as an action or as a series of actions. Uh, But when I encountered the idea of repentance as a state of being, it became far more difficult to to actually wrap my head around it and to to be comfortable with this idea of repentance as a state of being. Um, The idea of repentance as a state of being uh, and action is one with which I still wrestle. So it's not necessarily settled in my mind. I think, as Anna beautifully put it last week, for any of you that were here, uh, repentance is... This idea that we must live into and build into the world that we want to see. Uh, And so that's really a a true form of repentance. Uh, Over the past year or so, for those of you that I've spoken with personally, uh, um, I've moved towards a state of being, uh, repentance as a state of being uh, more fully, uh, you know. And so when I I didn't pursue being a pastor, I, I have to back up here. I pursued a career that led me to Corporate finance and procurement, I'll spare you the definition of what procurement is. Um, And so I really sunk myself into my work, uh, and I advanced through my field. With each advancement came a higher salary and more resources. Uh, My wife, Laura, and I joked that we supplemented her social work habit with, uh, with my work in corporate finance. But for years, I really struggled to come to terms with the world that I saw each day in corporate America. The excess versus the have-nots, uh, and the have-nots were really the world that I was drawn to. Um, I spoke with many of you here at Emmaus Way, uh, as I desperately wanted to discern uh, which path to take for the future, and ultimately I decided, decided that it was time for a radical change. Uh, and so I left that career uh, that I had built over the past decade, entered grad school, uh, going into one of the helping professions. Uh, and. I'm trying to pursue the world that I want to see and to build into something different. Um, I hope to count to I hope to build something into the future that that deeply cares for councils and advocates for all persons. For me, the the journey from the idea of repentance as an act of contrition to repentance as a lifestyle that can give back to all humanity that I encounter has meant drastic changes. Um, the corporate rhetoric I observed, participated in, and ultimately kind of endured was not what I wanted for the future that I would like to see built or that I'm building. I'm not saying that the pursuit of a career making money is bad by by any means. I'm saying I personally could no longer separate myself from that pursuit uh, and be an effective partner, father, or person. And finally, uh, something that that really stuck with me was uh, what Brandon Bain had to say last week when he mentioned a colleague of his who had recently released a book, uh, and and I'm going to butcher kind of what Brandon had to say probably, but the idea was that when King David's son uh, was dying, King David tore off his clothes, his robes, came down from his throne, and he wasn't a king at that moment, Um, but a repentant father asking for God's mercy and living into a state of repentance. 
So it was this idea of repentance, uh, not only as an action, as a state of being. You know, that, that image really resonated with me. Um, I, I would say, you know, gladly that I am no king, would never want to be. But the idea that a king would give up all the power and status that comes with that position to simply repent before God was really powerful. Um, I feel personally I live in a state of white male privilege that comes with substantial power and influence, even when I'm not aware of it. Um, And it requires repentance, not as a series of, of actions, but as a state of existence. And so with that, one's required to continually analyze and, and discern. And one, um, one thing that required, and it's, you know, this idea of repentance as a state of being is one that required me to shed certain things in order to ultimately rearrange my life into a, something closer to a state of repentance. Thanks so much, Tim, for sharing um, for all of Yeah, thanks so much for that thoughtful reflection. We're going to pass the piece and then come back and talk more about repentance and sort of what Tim said and what the woman at the well and Jesus have to do about repentance and what we all think about it. So take a moment, pass the piece, grab water, coffee, get some snacks, and we'll gather back in just a few moments. Throughout Lent, we're talking about repentance and kind of reframing our understanding of repentance and what does that mean for our lives and for our world. Um, And we're following the lectionary throughout Lent. So would someone start us off by reading the lectionary text? It's long. You can split it up if you would like. But somebody just read it out. he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaria. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I may never be thirsty, or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. 
What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am He, the one who is speaking to you. Just then His disciples came. They were astonished that He was speaking with a woman. But no one said, What do you want? Or, Why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way with him. Thanks so much, Jim. So we still have our overarching question of how does repentance kind of reframe our imagination. But I wanted to start tonight by asking, where do we see repentance in this specific text, in this encounter? Who is repenting? Who maybe isn't repenting? From what are people repenting? Where do we see repentance in this specific text? One, I see, is if we think of repentance as a turning toward. Jesus intentionally turns toward the woman at the well. And the woman at the well turns toward Jesus. It's a small one, but one example. And if we think of repentance as um, turning away from one reality and turning toward and different reality um, then you know Jesus is suggesting like a reorientation about what worship is mm-hmm. and so um, you know he's suggesting a turning of sorts toward a different imagination about what worship is yeah and even saying right that like worship happens Jerusalem you know complete shift of Location, heart, understanding. Great. If we think of repentance as a change in the way we think, um, this woman keeps trying to engage Jesus in a religious debate mm-hmm. of some kind, and he keeps answering her in a way that really surprises her. And so you don't really see her saying, 
okay, let me, let's pray this simple prayer, you know, Jesus, I repent of my sins. But you see over the course of the conversation that eventually she gets to this point where she's telling everyone what happened to her and bringing them to Jesus. So repentance through conversation. You must have been like spying through my microwave this morning because I was writing in my kitchen and I actually like, that's primarily what my take. But I really, (laughs) um, that's what I was thinking about and typing away about this morning. Yeah. Or how, another way to think about it, like how does this narrative and the themes of repentance that we've been talking about within this narrative connect or perhaps disconnect with our lives? Like where, where do we see all this talk of repentance and this story that so many of us know so well really connect with us or perhaps create a disconnect within our lives? One example I can think of, right, is like when Tim spoke of the journey from this idea of repentance as an act to repentance kind of as a lifestyle or state of being, I think that we see that through this woman and through the conversation with Jesus. Because really, through her encounter, she came to see repentance as turning toward one another. I think in recognizing that in the turning And the turning toward is when we are blessed and forgiven, empowered, and she's really liberated, right? Like, through that encounter and recognition of repentance as lifestyle or being, perhaps, she was no longer a passive conduit, but an active, vibrant participant in the kingdom. Her entire town finds out about Jesus the Christ through her and her one act of turning toward that then kind of caused transformation. But what what for y'all? How does this narrative and the themes of repentance connect? Yeah, Jim. Um, so if there's a two-dimensional character in here, characters, it's the disciples. Yes. And it, it's, it's really interesting. I, I think of the disciples oftentimes as being like, the coyote to Jesus, the roadrunner. <laughs> yeah. um, they're just constantly foiled. And, and I wonder if they aren't like a, a literary device mm. that, that are used to say um, you know, this and not that. <laughs> and, yeah. they're, and they're always the not that. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're, they're so transparently not uh, repenting mm. in here. They're really focused, right, on, like, getting stuff done, going to get food, doing this, doing that, not recognizing the opportunity to turn toward one another. It's very true. Yeah, Tim? I was going to say one thing that jumps out to me is that uh, based on the way Jesus addresses her, there's, like, a class difference there. Women are, like, almost (laughs) a lower class, it seems like. I mean, I guess historically we, we know that in this time period, but... He's looking at her and he addresses her. He's, he's asked her about her husband. She doesn't really have one. So whether she's a whole person in, this, in society's eyes, it's like in his, he's like basically saying, you're a whole person. So it's kind of this redeeming of her position. And like you said, you know, all of a sudden, you know, this, a woman who's probably viewed as less than a whole person gets to tell her entire village, you know, about Jesus. For sure. For sure, for sure. I think Jesus, they really see one another. In this encounter, was that a hand, yeah, Clinton? Yeah, it was a 
cautious hand. Um, <laughs> I hope this is okay to say. I found this deeply confusing and troubling. Yeah. Um, the way the conversation goes doesn't seem that kind at mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems very challenging. Like, he knows she doesn't have a husband. Why is he playing mm-hmm. the trick? I don't understand. Yeah. Like, the whole time I'm thinking, this feels really awkward to read. Um, I don't know. I, I, you asked where it disconnects for our lives and just no, actually sure. like that was something where. I'm, but I, I, yeah, I don't know how to resolve that with mm-hmm. the overall. I mean, I, I, I see the overall message of it, but I don't know how to resolve this sort of yeah. very I mean, uncomfortable conversation. For sure. Jesus is kind of, he's pretty blunt, right? And right. he, like, um, <laughs> I was taking, when I took the Gospel of John in Div School with my friend John, who's here tonight. Um, he, we had to do a worksheet on this, and part of it, which I'm going to talk about in a second, but is like we had to go through and mark the tone of this passage. And I was looking back on my worksheet, and I was like, Jesus is kind of an ass right here, um, very blunt. But as I went on, I, rec- I thought of myself and how many interactions men talk to women like that even today, right? And so it's still very, it's disconnected and that's uncomfortable, and I don't think we want to think, right, of Jesus being that blunt. But then I was like, oh, people still talk like that, too. Which, not to, that doesn't answer your question whatsoever, but it is something to wrestle with um, that I've been thinking about. Yeah. I think for me, um, when I was thinking about where does this narrative connect or these themes of repentance kind of connect with our lives, I just kept on coming back to the conversation that it's the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman that simply begins by being Jesus asking for a cup of water that really embodies an ever-expanding notion of repentance and the power that can happen when we turn toward one another, even if at first we're keenly aware of power dynamics and are living into that, and one of us is sort of a jerk or just being really blunt. Um, But a few kind of interesting things to note about this conversation is the verse right before this, verse 4, the narrator says, right? So the narrator intentionally says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. The, like, narrator, writer of John inserts that. But the question is, where Jesus was, did he really have to go through Samaria? No. Geographically, no. Not, like, none whatsoever. But my professor and dean, Gail O'Day, would argue that the narrator specifically stating that Jesus had to go through Samaria denotes a type of divine necessity to Jesus' work. The act of going to Samaria crosses significant social boundaries of religion, ethnicity, and gender, what Tim was saying, right? Like, this is... A guy and a girl talking at a well, this power dynamic shouldn't happen. By going, it's like he's going, he is going to the outsiders and saying that his, he's creating space for the outsiders in his ministry. Intentionally so. And it's especially interesting, too, when, you, when we recognize right that this passage happens right after Jesus tells Nicodemus, who doesn't totally get it for God to love the world. And he's kind of physically showing this by going to Samaria. Just a side note. 
And what's also interesting about this encounter and this conversation is that this Samaritan woman speaks more than any other person except for Jesus in the Gospel of John. She speaks, there are nine verses where her voice, where we are hearing her voice in this conversation. Nine. No one else speaks as much as her besides Christ. And not only is Jesus going to Samaria and having a conversation with this woman, not only is it a way of creating space to continue the ministry, but I really love this image um, process theologian John Cobb talks about when he's talking about these kind of encounters um, between Jesus and others in the gospel. And it says, It is God who, by confronting the world with unrealized opportunities, opens up a space for freedom and self-creativity. So it's like in this encounter, and if we were to really see it as an encounter of repentance, it's a creation of freedom and self-creativity. And I think that it matters that Jesus' revelation of who he is and her revelation of who he is happened in conversation. Because I think it's telling us even conversations that aren't always pretty and are uncomfortable, or even conversations with odd power dynamic, there's something transformative about that, right? There's something theological and like shaping of our faith in conversation. I think that this conversation between the two of them is really emblematic of what true relationship is, mutuality. We get there. Reciprocity regard for the other because it begins with a mutual vulnerability in some ways there are questions and this conversation takes time right like we see I think really the time and how this conversation and like the more that they're turning toward sort of how their conversation softens because in verse 7 we start off and Jesus is really direct and just says give me a cup of water And the woman could be read, perhaps, as slightly sarcastic back in verse 9. Probably because I want her to be, because he's sort of being a jerk, right? And then we shift to an enlightenment of sorts when the woman in 19 and 20 recognized Jesus as prophet. It's like something begins to shift. And then in verse 21 through 24, Jesus really, I think, shifts into what seems to be a deep desire for this woman to really know and see who he is. And so parts of me, kind of in this encounter and in this conversation, and when thinking about repentance as a turning toward another person more fully, it's kind of like Jesus letting down more of his guard. So that by the time in verse 26, when Jesus says, I am he, I just kind of imagine this huge sigh of relief Perhaps some would say a movement of the Spirit for both the woman and Jesus. As it seems they've finally started to look past all these boundaries and differences and really see the other person for who they are. And it's in turning toward one another, I think, in this conversation that these two affirm their mutual humanity. They share in the holy source of life that transcends all boundaries, customs, hatred, fear, and scarcity. They glimpse, I think, a spiritual wholeness, a new healing reality. 
I think it's in the insistence upon relationship. It's in the breaking down of barriers. We discover yet again a new reimagination of what repentance, what repentance can be, what repentance that comes through learning the truth and really seeing another person and learning that we need that other person in our lives no matter how different, even through the simplest of acts of conversation, that like true transformation and change happens. Anna Carter Florence, a brilliant homiletics prof who also wears great cowboy boots and once commented on mine, it was a proud moment, um, she puts this text another way, and I just kind of want to throw this out there for you all as we continue to think and reimagine. She says this of the text. There's something beautifully simple in the staging of this scene as well as its premise. Jesus is thirsty at the well, and we are the ones with the bucket. The deeper the metaphorical conversation that follows makes no sense until we really take this in. Can a little thing like a cup of cool water offered in love be the beginning of the salvation journey? She says, yes. And we will never know until we meet the stranger and tend to the human need first. Parts of me think that Carter Florence is being too simplistic. But then parts of me think that maybe this is what it means to turn toward one another and to God. As a daily daily embodiment of repentance. That repentance happens in the simplest of acts that can carry us across the greatest boundaries of division. Perhaps part of the act of recognizing that we have a cup of cool water to offer means recognizing that it is in the act itself of offering that cool water that we're intentionally more fully turning toward one another and therefore God. And in a world where we often willingly avoid, I think, or cut off Samarias and Samaritans in our life, hello, Trump administration and budget cuts and Meals on Wheels, kind of getting chopped off this week. And in a world where we often avoid the simple acts and prefer things much more complex or cerebral or sort of up here, we prefer to ignore things that challenge our assumptions or prefer things only with results. I think we miss the opportunity to ever understand and come to know repentance as an overarching reframing and transformation that happens when we're willing to sit down at a well with someone, whatever the wells of our society may be, and have a conversation, even if at first either one of us or both of us are kind of jerks. And I think that that reframing causes us to recognize the power in like stopping and giving a cup of water and sitting down and talking to people that we would prefer not to, and turning toward one another, and engaging in conversation. And I think in really asking ourselves, how does repentance reframe our imagination? And how is that repentance and that reframing going to change how we interact in the world today, tomorrow, this week, 
until we gather back again. I mean, I think I was just so moved by Tim of his conscious decision to leave a profession where he felt like he could not be the best partner and father and human in the world with what he was doing. And so he, like, chose to reframe his imagination and live into a new reality. And so, yeah, I guess, like, to end, like, how does repentance reframe our imagination? How does this conversation that happens between the Jesus and this woman reframe our understanding and how we might live in the world in this coming week? right on Duke Street, like at Duke and kind of Lakewood where they intersect. And I pass her all the time. My mother was in town two weeks ago. 
And she said, so what's, what's this woman's story? What's her name? And I haven't stopped to meet her. Because, right? No, I'm fighting poverty and injustice on systemic levels. <laughs> She's going to ask for money. I sh- probably shouldn't give her money. But what happens if I just stop and give her money and touch her? Yeah. And, and make her human. Yeah, John. I think often in thinking about repentance, we think of what we might lose, what we have to give up. In the hard conversation with someone we don't know, who's different than us, it's the, the risk is what weighs heavy on our mind. And um, I'm struck that when when the conversation ends and the woman goes back to her city, she leaves behind the water jug. And I'm struck even more that in the verses that follow. Jesus is offered food and he says, I don't need it. So there's something in that risk that is fulfilled. There's something we, that we find. Yeah. And so, so fulfilled in a way that we weren't before. And so that's the challenge this week for me is in that act of repentance or that conversation or that way of life. Looking at what will be fulfilled instead of what will be lost. Yeah. Very much so. I hope you preached a sermon on that this morning because that's really good. (laughs) (laughs) Any last thought? Um, um, The the phrase, and this is probably one of the jerky sounding, um, where Jesus says salvation is from the Jews. Yeah. So I've been just thinking about the the symbolism. I haven't read on this, but being at Jacob's well. Mm-hmm. There's Jacob, a lot of Jacob's sons, mm-hmm. Joseph mm-hmm. and Judah. Mm-hmm. And the sons of Joseph, who are the ancestors mm-hmm. of the Samaritans, and the sons of Judah, who are the ancestors of, of what we read here as Jews. Yeah. Um, and so, in a way, there's this whole sort of historical gathering around this Jacob's well of, of the lineage of those two sons. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, you know, this, this debate, do we worship on this mountain or um, Zion, Jerusalem, that mountain, is, there's a spatial dynamic to that. But this, you know, quoting this phrase, I don't even know the scripture, but this mm-hmm. phrase that he's quoting that salvation is from the Jews, see, is this moment of like affirming this ethnocentric view of salvation. Yeah. And that's where I kind of view the, the crucial pivot mm-hmm. a way where. And he says, but the moment's coming where we're doing away with that. It's and so to go back to your initial question of repentance, it's not a, I, don't, I wouldn't say Jesus is repenting, but there's a, there's a repentance going on in terms of the ethnocentricity of mm-hmm. Judah. There's a shift starting. And the bringing in of these separated brethren, mm-hmm. the sons of Joseph. Um, that's, to me, just because it is a lot of most scholars do not think it is by accident right that the gospel of John that it's stated that it's Jacob's will right where this conversation is happening so thanks kind of power and breaking free and breaking away and almost healing right like healing of thousands 
of years of division. Thanks for that. I hope y'all will come back next week. Um, we're talking about a really, I think, one of the most um, misinterpreted texts in the Bible, John 9, the man born blind, um, and repentance, and what does that look like? And how does that encounter reframe our imagination about repentance? But I do hope you'll come back as we continue. And I hope that, yeah, as we go about our weeks, we will think about how we might reframe, reorient, re-engage in the world this week a bit differently in regards to repentance, relationship, conversation, and power of perhaps what's being broken away or turning from. Thanks. Mark and Chessa will lead us now. So I grouped more songs together during this sort of confession absolution. We're trying this out a little bit to see uh, what it feels like musically to have uh, three songs here instead of two. Uh, So these songs, all three of them, I think, have elements of both confession and absolution in them. So I hope that these hang together in a way that, uh, in a way that sort of, not just sort of helps wrap up our night, but sort of helps us to, helps propel us into the week ahead. Um, the poetry of these songs. I hope they will help us ask more questions. I'm running from nothing, no thoughts in my mind 
glow back, but I saw something shine. Thought that part was yours, but it might just be mine. I could share it with you. Griffin song off of her very first album, which was called Living with Ghosts, uh, that she wrote after she was going through, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a long time since I thought about this story, but I think she had just gone through a divorce not too long before uh, writing and then recording this album. And uh, the album's great. It's mostly just her and an acoustic guitar that was recorded in her kitchen. Uh, they apparently, her record company, they tried to record this with a full band and it just didn't feel right. It didn't have the same energy that it had when they did the demos in her kitchen. So they ended up just releasing it with just her and the guitar in the kitchen. And I think there is something about the recording of it. I think there's something about her performance of it uh, that really speaks to this certain rawness uh, that I just love. So this is called Forgiveness. snakes at the bottom of a well so silent and peaceful in the darkness where we fell we are not snakes What's more, we never will be. We stay here swimming here forever. We will never be free. I heard him ringing the bell. Heaven and hell They got a secret Getting ready to tell It's falling from the sky Calling from the grave Open your eyes, boy I think we are safe Open your eyes, boy Think we are safe. Let's take a walk on the bridge. Right over this man. Don't need to tell me a thing, baby. We've already confessed. There 
raise my voice to the air And we were blessed It's hard to get It's hard to get But everybody needs A little forgiveness love this song. I always think this is a beautiful song. I think it's a beautiful song to lead us there. Uh, the idea that we find belonging, the idea that we find connection, uh, we find it with other people uh, as we go towards the table together.
God's highway I'll share my troubles If you go my way Marcus, fantastic. You know, uh, the question that was asked a couple times tonight, um, what do you need to confess of? That is way too easy for me. When I was, I, it, when I was thinking about uh, a deep pattern for me, one is this. If I could imagine myself from teenage through adult life, I would have been the kid wearing a shirt that said, pick me. I hated absolutely hated being excluded or passed over, and I would do almost anything to avoid that happening. 
Um, and the other thing that I, I, it comes to mind is the moments when I was picked and when I was included, um, I was easy for me to be the very first person who might exclude someone else to keep them out of this space that I worked so hard to get into. Those are two things that come to mind, and they come to mind often. I've never escaped those two constant realities, uh, things in my life that remind me of these things all the time. Um, I reflect a lot of times of, of my teen years and college years where I had a couple of profound orphaning experiences, which just accelerates this idea of pick me, let me in, uh, notice me, uh, uh, raising kids where uh, they have to go through academically and athletically all these moments where people were looking at them with clipboards or whatever and deciding whether they would be picked, and and I have these visions of my dad, myself as the dad, watching them come home with report cards or sitting in a tryout, looking over the fence and going, "Oh my God, pick my kids, please!" Um, or or even now, just in my academic life as a researcher, looking at things like social class and race and how it relates to religion and social justice a- activism, I'm constantly aware of how incredibly driven I've been by this reality of desiring to be picked and often acting that out in a horrible way and perhaps excluding others. In fact, Emmaus Way and its obsessive hospitality and every bit of the structure that we've formed over 12 years that that, uh, fashioned an open table and the absence of a creed to be a part of our community and all of those things are in many ways this joyful penitence in my life of, of in some ways looking at it as an entirely different thing. Perhaps we live in a world That isn't a world of scarcity where we have to fight so incredibly hard to be picked. In fact, I'm constantly made aware of this in a few moments of enlightenment, the rare ones that I have where I I might come to the realization, you know what, you may have already been picked. Um, But I looked at this text and it reminds me of something that we've said for a long time. What if we didn't live in a world of scarcity but we lived in a world of radical abundance and the possibility of radical inclusion. And this text just overwhelms me with that image. I think about this, the, uh, Brandon, you pointed this out so beautifully. There's something incredibly geographically happening in this text from this kind of racial struggle of worship in a couple of high places in the sense that perhaps something incredibly profound is happening in the low space of the dust around a well, not those high places. And, and Jesus even says this hour is coming. It's, it's almost here. It's, it's here now. It's this hour is coming. And I, I thought back and some people probably here will know this. Brian, you probably know this better than me. Um, what chapter of John is it where he's kind of lounging around and the Gentiles come to him? And he says, my hour has arrived. There's a million things Jesus could have said that would have provoked him to say, my hour has arrived. But it was the coming of Gentiles, this reorientation of this world that we got a peek at. Male, female, high places, whose geography, whose gods, whose worship space. And all of a sudden, in this precious moment, we're seeing a reorientation, a movement from scarcities, because scarcities mean that you have to be in the right place. You have to be with the right people to this beautiful moment where the right space is in the dust. And I love the image that you provided us with is that empty jug sitting there. What a profound symbol of the reorientation. Because the jug says to me, you can get water whenever you want it. 
Uh, it is here. Just drink and drink. This well is really old and you're never going to drink it dry. So our invitation today is our table that we hope will never run dry. And the envisionment of the table is to draw us into that new economy, not an economy of scarcity. No one will try out to be in this space. No one will be left out. And perhaps for people like me that have worked so hard to be picked and at times worked so hard to relish that picking when it occurred, I'm being asked, and perhaps you too, to live in a different way, live in a space of abundance, live in a reality that there's just a big water jug sitting over there and you can grab it anytime you want. Join us at the table. Uh, You know how we do it. We serve each other. Uh, We embrace each other. We're rowdy. We tell stories of our lives. We offer bread and wine and juice to each other and we live in the reality of God's expansive kingdom. Join us at the table.